The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, uh, as we uh, look into the Word of God, I want you to turn to the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, I've always been um, somewhat fascinated with the book of Mark because uh, the historians tell us that it was most likely the first gospel that was written. Um, there's a, uh, you know, what the historians say don't matter from the standpoint, uh, or doesn't matter from the standpoint of, uh, of in the inspired word, but it is interesting to me, uh, and it's interesting from another standpoint. If you'll read the book of Mark, it's only 16 chapters. And it's, it's so, uh, it's shorter than all the others, and it's direct and to the point. It's really amazing uh, when you read it, just the simplicity of that gospel. Uh, now, in, in, by way of introduction, I want, us to, I want to share a few um, thoughts with you, a few facts with you. Um, first of all, the, the writer of this gospel is, is Mark. It's actually, he's known as John Mark. In several places, one place I believe he's called Marcus, and um, the early church was unanimous in their acceptance that John Mark was the writer of the second gospel. And if you'll if if you'll uh, remember about John Mark or Mark as we call him, uh, I'm just going to give you a few citations to uh, to the um, the book of Acts to kind of give you a little background on who he is. Uh, he was the son of a widow named Mary, and you read about that in Acts, the 12th chapter, uh, beginning about the 12th verse, and, and you'll note in that passage uh, that the disciples met in, in Mary's home, and there's also a tradition, I don't, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's, it was interesting as I was doing some research on this, there is a tradition that that may have served as the location of the Last Supper. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but that's just an ancient thought, and, and it's kind of neat to think about it if it, if it is. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10 tells us that he's the cousin of Barnabas. And you remember Barnabas. Barnabas was instrumental in Paul's ministry. He and Paul went many places together. Uh, John Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey initially in Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. But then in Pamphylia, he left them according to Acts chapter 13 and verse 13 and it doesn't tell us why, but apparently there was some problem because uh, later on in Acts chapter 15 and verses 37 through 39, Paul rejected him as he attempted to, uh, to join them. And in fact, it caused a contention between Paul and Barnabas. And, um, and so uh, that kind of gives you a little, a little background on who Mark was. Uh, now, later on, according to 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, if you get a chance to look at it, I believe you'll see that it appears that Paul and, and Mark reconciled. They were, they were able to get, uh, uh, get back together and, and back in fellowship. So now the, the early church, as I said, was unanimous in their understanding and belief that Mark wrote this gospel. And they were also unanimous in their belief that that he he wrote it as a uh, uh, as he visited with Peter, uh, Peter the apostle, Simon Peter. In fact, Simon Peter in in First Peter five verse thirteen calls Mark my son. Now I want to read you a couple of things from uh, from a couple of ancient uh, church fathers and writers from that day. Uh, again, this this doesn't matter from the standpoint of our understanding that this is an inspired uh, uh, an inspired scripture but uh, but I'll tell you it is interesting to me that um, uh, to, to understand what they thought about it back then and and it's also interesting if this is true to to kind of get a perspective on where mark was and what he was thinking a, a man named Papias of Hierapolis who was born in AD 60 and died in AD 130. He provides the earliest account, and this is what he says about Mark. He says, And the presbyter said this, talking of himself, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. So you'll notice that the early church believed that Mark got his gospel from, a, from talking to Peter. In other words, uh, it was Peter who had personal 
interaction, personal knowledge of everything that was being said here that, that Mark is writing this down. Now, again, I'm not talking about the, 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 that this somehow is not inspired. It is absolutely inspired of God. But one thing that I've noticed through reading the Word of God is that, uh, that it's rare for the Lord to inspire somebody to write something that they didn't have some personal knowledge about. And that makes it kind of interesting, doesn't it, that Mark here was getting this from someone who was with the Lord Jesus Christ when he was physically here on earth. So Mark is not coming up with this on his own. We know he's inspired of the Holy Ghost, but even according to, to our uh, historical uh, beliefs in, in, the, in the Christian church, he was not just getting it from uh, out of the air, so to speak, or from the Holy Spirit just uh, saying, hey, I know you never saw any of this, but I'm telling you about it. He actually got it from Peter, who was with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and it goes on to say, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers. But um, And then he said this, Wherefore Mark made no mistake in thus writing these things as he remembered them. For of one thing he took a special care not to omit anything he had heard, and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. In other words, uh, they're saying that they believed that what Mark wrote was the truth. And of course, we believe that as well because we believe it's the inspired word of God. Later on, uh, a, a church, early church father named Irenaeus uh, wrote this. He said, after their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Now, all of that is by way of introduction to the gospel, according to Mark. And I just kind of want to give you that background because I want you to understand what's happening here. I, I love reading the words, but it's so um, helpful sometimes for us to understand the context, even the historical context of what's going on. So what we find here in the book of Mark, if these early church fathers are correct, is that the writer, John Mark, who had personal interaction with Paul and Barnabas and ultimately Peter, is hearing Peter tell him what Peter remembers, what Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, remembers about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark, through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is writing it down and now we have this sweet little book, this simple, straightforward, uh, easy-to-read account of what happened when the Lord Jesus Christ was here. So with that background, I want us to look at the first chapter here this morning and kind of uh, talk about it a little bit. And by the way, I meant to mention this early on, and it slipped my mind in, the, in, the, in starting this, but we want to welcome the Las Vegas Primitive Baptist Church. To, they're joining us this morning via Facebook, and uh, you continue to pray for them. Uh, we're so thankful for their fellowship. They were able to come out here and be with us about, um, about a year ago at our annual meeting, and we look forward to being able to be with them in person again. But welcome to them and to all of you. In the first chapter of Mark, this is what we read in the first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we continue reading here, and we're going to in a moment, but, uh, but the first 13 verses or so is an introduction to Jesus' ministry. It, it's sort of an introduction, and, and it's, in, it's, so, um, it, it's neat to, continue to, to look at it because there's several people that introduce us to Jesus. Okay, uh, the first verse here is Mark's introduction of Jesus. Now listen to this again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, Mark doesn't mince words here. And if Peter's the one that's uh, dictating to him uh, as, as we think he is, he doesn't, he doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to soft pedal it. He jumps right into the heart of the matter. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that is good news. You know, there's no better way to start a gospel, is there? Let's, let's get to the heart of what is the good news. The good news is this beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's no apology for that. There's no equivocation on that. There's no um, soft peddling it. Uh, listen, he says, he's the son of God, and that's good news. That's good news for us. And I want to tell you, that's good news for us today. I don't know of a better way. If you're going to talk about the gospel, you know, gospel means good news. 
That's what that word means. And the best news of all is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's kind of like the way the, uh, the whole Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God. Boy, I can't think of a better way to start a, a Bible. <laughs> uh, the Lord knows what he's doing, I'll tell you. He's just so good at, at, at he, he knows exactly what we need to hear first. The first thing we need to know is that in the beginning, God. Well, guess what? The beginning of the gospel is God. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is the Son of God. That is the good news. Because you see, if he weren't the Son of God, then what he did would have just been tragic. The life of Jesus Christ, if he were just a man, would have been a, a tragic life. It would be a Greek tragedy, if you will. Because he came here, he tried to convert people, they rejected him, and then they killed him. That's just tragic. That's terrible, isn't it? That's a sad case. And it would be a sad case. It would be a sad story. It would be something we wouldn't really enjoy. We wouldn't like the ending of that story if Jesus were not the Son of God. But Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that's what Mark wants us to know before we know anything else. Not that Jesus was a rabbi, not that Jesus was a prophet, not that he was a great man. He was all of that. But he, more importantly, most importantly, he was the Son of God, and he is the Son of God. And that's why Mark starts it so straightforward and so simple. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What's the good news of Jesus Christ, Mark? He is the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark's introduction to us. Mark's introduction to us is saying, look, this isn't a tragedy. I know you've probably heard all about what happened to Jesus this would have been a well-known story in that day, a well-known account. People would have understood when, you know, Mark is probably writing this in the 50s or 60s A.D. Uh, Jesus' crucifixion occurred back in about 30 to 33 A.D., and, and, and everybody knew about it then. But see, the, that's not good news. The, the, that's kind of a, again, that's a tragic story if he's not God. But, but Mark says the good news is, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's the way he introduces us to him. That's Mark's introduction of Jesus' ministry. But then we keep reading and we read about John's introduction of Jesus. As it is written, no, verse 2, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, uh, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. I want you to notice John's introduction of Jesus. I want you to notice what he looked like. Look, look at how he, look how he packaged his message. You know, that's a big deal today, isn't it? How you package something. Um, in fact, they would tell you that, uh, uh, that for churches, you need to package the message in a certain way. Man, the televangelists do it great, don't they? They're all, they're all, they're all fixed up. They're wearing suits and they're flying around in jet airplanes and they're, Man, it, it makes you want to be like them. I'll tell you, those, some of those televangelists, they look nice. You know, they're in good shape. They're not, they're up there. They're very well spoken. And uh, people just want to come out and see those folks, right? But I want you to notice the packaging of John. <laughs> Verse 6, he was clothed in camel's hair. He had a girdle of the skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey. <laughs> Boy, that, that, there's a big difference between John the Baptist and the televangelists, isn't there? Uh, John the Baptist wasn't anything to look at. John the Baptist, in fact, was an oddity. He was a weird-looking guy. He he was out there in the wilderness. He he ate locusts and wild honey. And look, they had better food than that back then. You know, John the Baptist wasn't part of the name it and claim it crowd. 
John the Baptist was a man who was uh, out there for one purpose and one purpose only, and it wasn't to vaunt himself. Notice he said, it's not about me. He didn't say, there. oh, I'm a mighty man now, and there's somebody coming along that's about as good as I am. No, he said, there cometh one mightier than I after me, and the latchet of his shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I'm not worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. It's not about me. It sure isn't about how I look, and it's not about my mega church building. It's all about the one that I'm preaching about. That's John's introduction to Jesus. And notice he came from, you know, the basis of his introduction is John, we won't turn there and read it, but go back to Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 40, and you'll read about the, the things that John uh, was prophesied to do. And, and you might, I'm going to turn over to Luke. Luke elaborates a little bit on it in his gospel. In chapter 1 and verse, uh, verse 15, this is what he says, the, the angel Gabriel said to Zacharias, John's father, about his his son that's soon to be conceived and born. It says, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And notice that it says great in the sight of the Lord. He wasn't great in the sight of men, but he was great in the sight of the Lord. You know, I, I'm afraid some of these folks that think that uh, church is all about how many, how much money you bring in and how many uh, people you can get joining and how big your building is. I, you know, they're great in the sight of men, but I think I think that some of our little churches out here that are trying diligently to, to preach the truth of God's word and trying to diligently serve the Lord, uh, I think that maybe those are the ones that are great in the sight of the Lord. I know this, that John the Baptist in camel's hair and his uh, loincloth uh, uh, girded around him, eating locusts and wild honey, it says, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Notice that he didn't do the preparation, but he made ready those who had been prepared. And that was his introduction to Jesus. And his message was simple. Verse 4 says he baptized. He, he baptized. That word baptized means to immerse. It means to go down into the water. It, it comes from a Greek word that means to dye a garment. You don't sprinkle dye on a garment. You immerse the garment in the dye. And that's why we believe in, in the uh, baptism being baptism by immersion. And, uh, and he says in his message, as I've already said, it's not about me. My message is about one who is much greater than me. Over in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John tells us a little bit more about John's ministry. Now, John the Baptist didn't write the Gospel of John. It was John the Apostle. But John the Baptist plays strongly in the beginning of the Gospel uh, here of, uh, of, of John. And verse 19 says, this is the record of John. You know, I think if... if <laughs> It's probably important. It, this is probably uh, the Lord inspiring him, the writer, to write this so that we'd say, you know, it's important what John the Baptist's record was. You need to, you know, people are always interested. Well, what's your background? What's your, what's your uh, resume? Well, this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "Who art thou?" Notice this is the time he could have taken some, uh, some. Um, honor to himself. He could have said, oh, hey, I'm the guy that they've been prophesying about. You know, look, look, I've got, you need to listen to me. Why don't we start a, why don't we start a synagogue around what I'm preaching? No, that's not what he said. He confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I'm not. Art thou that prophet? He answered, No. And then said they unto him, Who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? I think it's important to know what the John the Baptist says about himself. I think that's important, don't you? Because I think him being the first Baptist preacher, <laughs> I think it's important for the rest of us Baptist preachers to be able to be thinking about, well, how did he approach his ministry? This is what he said of himself. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Notice what he says here. He says, he doesn't say I'm anything. I'm nothing. I'm just a voice. That's all I am is a voice. I'm a voice. And by the way, I'm crying in the wilderness. 
You know, sometimes it feels that way to me, doesn't it, to you? you some of you preachers that may be watching out there, feels like we're crying in the wilderness. People don't want to hear what we have to say. And, and, and certainly what I have to say, if it comes from me, isn't worth anything to listen listening to. It's not worth hearing. But I'll tell you this, if we're preaching the word of God, it's worth hearing. And even if we're preaching in the wilderness, like John the Baptist, you know, John the Baptist didn't build up a following. John the Baptist lost a following. As soon as Jesus came on the scene, uh, his disciples started leaving him for Jesus. <laughs> but you know what? I'm okay with that. John the Baptist was okay with that. He was fine with folks following Jesus. He didn't want people to follow him. Beloved, I don't want you to leave Zion Primitive Baptist Church, but if following Jesus causes you to leave here, then leave by all means, because what I'm preaching to you is not that you should follow me or Brother Buddy or you should follow Zion Primitive Baptist Church, but that you should follow Jesus. And he goes on to say a little bit farther over, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That is that is the ministry of John the Baptist. That's the message, and that's how John introduced the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9 of Mark, chapter 1, it said, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And notice what happens after his baptism. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Beloved, we've seen Mark's introduction of Jesus. We've seen John's introduction of Jesus. Now we see God's introduction of Jesus. He says, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Oh, isn't it amazing what the Lord says about his own Son? Now, I hope it's not lost on you that there's coming a time some 33 years later, so, well, not that long, some three years later from this point, where the Lord Jesus Christ will be hanging on a cross and according to his own testimony, he will cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In other words, there's coming a point where God will turn his back on his son. But because God never lies, because God never um, goes back on his word, notice that he says here, I am well pleased in my son. So why did he turn his back on his son one day? And that's part of the gospel. That's part of the good news. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ became something that God hated. He became sin for us. He became that which God could not stand. You know, if you want to know how bad God hates sin, all you have to do is look at the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross I'll tell you, beloved, if my son were to be crucified for something that I hated, that's the first that, that's the time I would be tempted to not hate it so bad. If they were taking one of my sons to hang him for something, uh, to hang him on a cross for something that, that I had stated that, you know, I'm against, I don't like this, I'm opposed to this, you know, that's the time I would be tempted to say, well, wait a minute now, it's not quite so bad. But if you want to know how bad God hates sin, Look at the cross. Look at what, he, what happened to his son on the cross. If ever God were tempted to wink at sin, it would have been then. But you see, there's a reason the Lord did this. He, was, he says here, I am well pleased in my son. He was not pleased in the sin that he became, but he was pleased in the work that he was doing. And that's what the good news is all about, isn't it? You and I are sinners. We are slain by sin. We are afflicted from birth. I'll tell you, I've, I've, I've tried to do some good things in my life, but I've never been able to do them right. I've never been able to do them with a completely pure motive. Even the good things I've done have been done with some impure motive in my heart. I am afflicted with the sin of Adam. And I cannot reach the heavenly perfection that is required in order for me to be qualified to go to heaven. I cannot get there on my own. I cannot get there through my own efforts. But beloved, that's why the Lord, who hated sin and would not wink at sin, 
sent his son to the cross to die for sin. Because then, you see, his perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is imputed to me because of what he did on the cross. That's the Lord God Almighty's introduction to, of his son. Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. By the way, verse 10 tells us, or verse 9 rather, tells us that Jesus came and was baptized. You know, that's kind of uh, interesting, isn't it? You would think a man who was perfect had no need to be baptized. But you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to flaunt the law. He came to fulfill it. He didn't come to flaunt the rules. He came to fulfill them. And he was giving us an example of what we ought to do uh, if we believe and trust in him. We ought to also follow him in New Testament baptism. Now, in verse 12, we find one more person or entity on the scene in the introduction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark has introduced us to him as the Son of God. John has introduced us to him as someone mightier than he. Uh, God has introduced him to us as um, his beloved son. And it says in verse 12 that someone else comes on the scene. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Satan is always present, I'm sorry to say, whenever... Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is working. Now, Satan's not more powerful than the Spirit of God. Satan's certainly not more powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ, but, but I'll just say it this way, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this this morning, but let me just say this. If the Lord Jesus Christ couldn't be baptized without Satan coming and tempting him, then how did we expect that we will escape that kind of temptation? Uh, sometimes we run into this situation where people say, Oh, I, I just, you know, I just don't feel like I'm worthy to be baptized. I don't feel like uh, I'm, I'm qualified. Well, you know, the only qualification that I ever read about in the Word of God is that you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in believer's baptism. If that's the way you feel, if that's what you believe, then you ought to join the church. But don't expect when you join the church, when you're baptized, that you'll be left alone because that's the time when Jesus was tempted more mightily than any other time. We're not going to read about it, but you look in Matthew, the fourth chapter, Luke over there as well, and it'll tell you uh, he was tempted in every way. He was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything that's in the world he was tempted with, and we're told that he was tempted like as we are and yet without sin. Satan's introduction to the Lord Jesus Christ was in the way of temptation. But now I want us to turn, for the time that we have left, to the initiation of Jesus' ministry. We've seen the introduction to his ministry. Now let's see how it's initiated. Let's see how it starts. And that begins in verse 14. In verse 14 and 15, we begin to read about his message. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, listen, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Remember, gospel means good news. Gospel means that... Uh, it's good news in Greek, and it says he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the gospel? What is the good news of the kingdom of God? Well, certainly it has to do with eternity. Yeah, absolutely, it in involves the fact that Jesus has come, and he's going to die for the sins of every each and every one of his people. He's going to put them away, and one day we're going to be with him forever in eternity. Some would teach that this kingdom of God that he's talking about is something that's coming 2,000 years later or 3,000 years later or sometime down the road, and it's going to be an earthly kingdom set up here with a political head, the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning here. I suggest to you that whatever you believe about the end times, that what this kingdom is, is not something that's coming in the future. It's not something that is waiting on us in heaven. But listen to what it says. He says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. That word at hand means near. It's near to you. It is here now. It's not something that's coming down the road. <clears throat> it's not something that's coming later. It is here and now. And by the way, wherever Jesus was, there was the kingdom of God. And we're going to read about it a little bit later, that wherever you are, child of God, 
There is the kingdom of God. In the book of Luke, he tells us that the kingdom of God is within you. And what he's saying here is, is that the kingdom of God is coming. And by the way, you'll notice that he didn't deviate from the script. Jesus is the ultimate team player, capital T, because he plays for the ultimate team, capital U, capital T, okay? He plays for the ultimate team. Jesus is not on a different sheet of music from John. He's not changing things that have been preached in the past. He is on the same sheet of music. He's preaching the truth of the kingdom of God, and he's saying, listen to me. This is good news. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has come near to you. It is at hand. In other words, you can reach out and touch it. No, it's not a physical kingdom. He tells Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my people fight. My armies would fight. But what he's saying is, is that what I'm bringing to you is something different than what you are expecting. The Jews of that day were expecting a political leader to come in to throw off the yoke of the Roman Empire. Luke, in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, the kingdom of God cometh not by observation. He tells us it's within you. It's different than what they were expecting. But regardless of what they were expecting, it's good news that it is now at hand. It is now near to you. What he's saying basically is, you know, you know how all, all those Old Testament prophets talked about how great God is and how high on the throne of heaven he, he sits? Well, guess what? Now he is near unto you. Now he is at hand. This kingdom that seems to be so unattainable, this kingdom that seems to be so far away, beloved, it is at hand. It is here and now. That's what the message is about. You know, that's part of the good news of the gospel. That's the corollary. That's the result of the good news that Jesus Christ came to pay the sin debt for his people. The good news is that that, that puts us... Uh, in, in, a, in a way to be in heaven one day for eternity, but it also lets us experience a little heaven here and now. Boy, that's simple, and I love Mark's gospel. He says the time is fulfilled. All that stuff you've been reading about in the Old Testament, it's here. It's fulfilled. All those old prophecies, they're here and now. They're now uh, uh, available to you. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says... In response to that, you need to do something. You need to repent and believe it. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into the new birth and explain all of that. Let me just suffice it to say this, that we understand the Word of God teaches that there are people out there in the world that will never be interested in the kingdom of God. There are people that, that will never tune in to a message like this. There are people that aren't concerned about that. Their hearts are not tender to the gospel. You know, and in, in, in the natural man, in our natural state, you and I are the same way. You and I would be absolutely immune to the effects of the gospel in our natural state. But oh, when the Spirit of God tenderizes our heart, when he takes that stony heart out of our flesh and puts a, a tender heart in there, then we are susceptible to the teachings of the good news of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I'm not happy in this world. I'm not satisfied here. I don't like the fact that this morning we were on Zoom. We were having a great time. Brother Buddy was leading a good song over there. He and his family were singing it. We were listening and we were trying to sing along. And guess what? The power goes out and, and everything has to be reset. Something's always coming up to mess up my good time here. Something's always giving me problems in this life. I had a good time last night. We went and played kickball over at the... Uh, Tim and Tracy's house, and, and all the family was there. We had a, just a great time. I got out there. I was kicking the ball and running the ball and, and, and rolling the ball and throwing the ball and all that, and when I got home, my shoulders were hurting and my hips were hurting, and this morning it was hard to get up. I don't know if you have the same problems I do, but something's always messing up my good time. But the good news is, is that I am not at home here. If you don't feel at home here, then that's the best news of all. That means you're not at home here. This world is not my home. I'm just a pilgrim. I'm just a stranger. I'm passing through. That's the good news of the gospel. If you're at home here in the world, it's not good. 
loving you. But beloved, if you're not, look, I, there's things about this world I enjoy. Yes, I love to fish. I love to hunt. I love to uh, to have fun with friends. I love to, I enjoy my work. I enjoy my family. But but something's always coming to an end. None of the things that, that we enjoy last forever. They're always coming to an end. I'm longing for the day when my joy does not have to cease. I'm not at home here. I'm not happy here. But the good news here and now is that what we're going to experience one day in heaven is here at hand today. And that's part of what we're experiencing now. I look over here at this computer screen that has so many of your faces on it. It is so good to see you. This is, a, this is messed up too. <laughs> this is so messed up. We need to be together. I want to be able to, to hug your necks. I want to be able to speak with you and talk with you, not via the internet, but because of the coronavirus, because of problems in this world, we're ha we cannot be together like we need to be and like we want to be. But the good news is the kingdom of God is at hand. We are, what we experience on a temporary basis here is what we're going to experience for eternity up there. He said, the time is fulfilled. That's Jesus' message. And then as we keep reading here, you notice that in verse 16, he comes across some people with whom this message resonates. Notice his disciples. Verse 16, now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to be, become fishers of men. Notice what he's done here. He's taken some fishermen, and he's making them fishers of men. Straight away, listen, and straight away they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. <laughs> Simon, and, which is Simon Peter, by the way, who, who if, if, if indeed it is true that he's dictating this to Mark, I can just see the... the the look in his eye as he remembers this time when the Lord Jesus Christ, when he first encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says he was, they, were, they were casting nets. It was just another day at the office for them. It was just another day at work. They were fishermen. They were actually out there doing their jobs. And then James and John were mending their nets. They were getting ready for another routine day. And two times the adverb straightway occurs. <laughs> Straightway is an adverb meaning directly or, or at once, anon, as soon as, immediately. It's used twice here. And once it's used of the disciples and once of Jesus. And the response in both cases is that these disciples followed him. Notice it says, first of all, that straightway they forsook their nets. And then in verse 20, straightway he called them. I'll tell you, beloved, Jesus' calling is straightway. Jesus' calling is don't tarry, don't question, just do it. When the Lord calls you, whatever it is he's calling you to do, don't tarry. There's no waiting. Well, let me go bury my father. Let me go, let me, I just married a wife. I've done this. There's several men that made excuses <coughs> in, um, uh, in, in later on in the Gospels that he talks about. He said, if you're making excuses, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to heaven, but what that means is, is you cannot serve God uh, and serve man. You cannot serve God and serve your own interests. You cannot say, well, Lord, I'm busy today, but come back tomorrow and maybe I can help you. When the Lord calls, you need to answer straight away. I'll tell you, my experience in, uh, in, in, in surrendering to the call to preach is very similar to this. And I did put the Lord off. I put him off for a long time. I put him off for all kinds of excuses. Uh, one, one excuse I made for the Lord is that I was going on a trip. I felt like the Lord was calling me in 2016, or 2006 rather. And I said, well, I just don't need to acknowledge that I'm being called to preach because I've got to go on a two-week trip and it wouldn't be good. I'll just surrender to the call when I come back. Well, guess what? It was another, it was another year and I thought that I was going to die before I finally gave up and, and did what the Lord wanted me to do. But the, the calling of God is straightway. And I guarantee you one thing. 
I don't believe any of these fishers, fishermen who became fishers of men would ever tell you, boy, I regret responding to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, even on their deathbeds, even as they were being crucified or burned at the stake, or even John the Apostle, who ended up dying of natural causes according to history, but who was, uh, who was isolated in exile on the Isle of Patmos for so many years there, even he would say, uh, you, you say, John, was it worth it? He would say, absolutely, it was worth it. Beloved, that's the other good news of the kingdom is that serving God is worth every minute of it. I've never regretted surrendering to the call to preach. I've never regretted being a part of the kingdom of God, the visible aspect of the kingdom of God, which is, which is the church. I've never regretted joining the church. Oh, I've had problems in church. I've had issues and difficulties arise. I've been tempted. I've been tried. I've experienced tribulation, but I've never regretted it, beloved. These men didn't regret it. I can see Peter dictating this to Mark right now uh, as he's sitting there, and I can just see the the, the, the faraway look in his eyes, and I know he's thinking I'd do it all again. I'd, done, I'd have done it all again. That's his disciples. And notice now in verse 21, Jesus preaching. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Notice that his preaching... Um, first of all, it followed the normal course. It wasn't something new. He wasn't trying to come up with something new. He didn't teach them something that differed or was in opposition to that in the Old Testament. His interpretation was uh, uh, gave them more light on what was going on. But notice that he didn't come up with something new. Beloved, too many people today are trying to come up with something new. I'm not smart enough to come up with a better gospel. I'm not smart enough to come up with a better Bible. I've, I've tried to search the scriptures. I've searched the scriptures with, an, with a view toward trying to find out where they conflict and where there's problems. But beloved, I can't find any problems. You say, well, this conflicts with that. Let me, let me ask you to go look at it a little closer. <laughs> I guarantee you, you can work it out. Beloved, the, uh, uh, the, the truth is that I'm not smart enough to come up with something new. What was amazing to them and why they were astonished at his doctrine is that he didn't teach them as just the scribes. He taught them as someone... Who, uh, who had authority. It was the fact here that this carpenter, this carpenter's son who had no formal education, who had no training, he'd not been to, he'd not been to, uh, uh, to, to seminary, he'd not been to some kind of synagogue school, he had had no training, but he spoke nevertheless as one with authority. He had power. And to prove that he had power, he begins to perform miracles. Look at his miracles. There's there's at least four here in this in this scripture, and we won't be able to deal with all of them that well. But notice in verse 23, it says, There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art. And the holy, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Even, you know, that's interesting, isn't it? That even the, the devils, we're told this in the book of James, that even the devils believe and tremble. <laughs> the devils know him sometimes better than we do. Notice what Jesus did. Jesus rebuked him saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean beast had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And you see the response. They were all amazed and they began to question then skipping down to verse 29, it says, uh, you know, he, he, he uh, cast out the unclean spirit. Then in verse 29, he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever. And anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her. And she ministered unto them. I, I'll tell you, I like hearing about that in these days, don't you? I like hearing about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ can heal us of a fever. That's what we're dealing with in and out there, this virus that's going around and scaring us to death. I'm thankful to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is still the Lord over all the viruses. He still has power over all of the, 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 the sicknesses and the diseases out there that could afflict us. I know that in general, he, lets, he, he, he chooses to heal through the hands of men, but sometimes the Lord can reach down and just touch you and, and, and heal you and bring you back. <laughs> And here we see that that's what he did with, um, with Simon's mother-in-law. 
Then in verse 32, it says, At even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed by devils. And the city was all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. Here we see him healing the multitude of the diseased and the possessed. He cast out the devils. He healed many. And then in verse 40, I want us to look at this as we kind of sort of bring this to a close this morning. I want you to notice how amazing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was and how amazing his message was. In verse 40, there came a leper to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Isn't this the epitome of faith? Isn't this the kind of faith that we need to have? Lord, I know if you will, you can. That's sort of what the uh, children of Israel, the three Hebrew children, said over in Daniel, the second chapter, I believe it is, when the um, great king of Babylon uh, set up the image and told everybody they had to bow down to it or else they were going to be cast into the fiery furnace. They they said, King, we're not we're not afraid, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. We we know what we need to do. Our God is able to deliver us. And he said, He will deliver us. You know, he'll he'll take us one way or another out of your hands, either through death or through some other miraculous means. He says, uh our God is able, but if not we're not going to bow down either anyway. We're not going to bow down anyway. That's the epitome of faith. That's, the, that's what we, is that not what we're saying as children of God? Lord, we know you can. We know you're able. And, and we're asking you to be willing. We're, we're praying that you will. We know that you can. But even if you don't, we trust you anyway. That's kind of what this leper said. He didn't come there demanding. He didn't come there uh asserting any privilege or any right. He said, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Notice in verse 41, I take great comfort from this. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. <laughs> Notice, first of all, the amazing thing about this encounter here is that the Lord Jesus Christ was moved with compassion. That gives me great comfort, knowing that when I have troubles, even if it's leprosy, even if it's something as bad as that, uncurable, incurable disease of leprosy, the Lord is moved with compassion when he sees my struggles, when he sees my hurting, when he sees my diseased body and my need. And that, that word moved with compassion literally means to have the bowels yearn for. You know, the Greeks had a different way of looking at things. We think about the heart as being the seat of emotions, but they thought about the, the stomach and, and the bowels as being the seat of emotions. And, and think about it. It makes sense, doesn't it? You ever heard, you ever gotten butterflies in your stomach when, you're, when, when, you, when you saw your, your, your dear love, you know, coming down the aisle when my wife, when the doors opened and my wife came in in her wedding gown, it, you know, my heart was beating fast, but I had butterflies in my stomach. It, it was, that's, that's the kind of yearning that we're talking about here. The Lord Jesus Christ is looking at this leper and he's yearning with compassion. His, he's moved to his core uh, with compassion. And then he does something that is absolutely amazing. And if you don't understand what the Old Testament says about leprosy and lepers, then you don't really get this. So let's try to really get this. In the Old Testament, lepers were not to be touched. As a matter of fact, um, uh, the, the law of the leper in Leviticus chapter 14 and, and 15 was that he was unclean and we, he was to be, anybody who touched him was to be unclean. Anybody who touched a leper was unclean and was considered ceremonially unclean and couldn't enter into the synagogue or into the, certainly not into the tabernacle or to the temple. And, and here we have the Lord Jesus Christ who is moved with compassion, putting forth his hand and touching this leper. 
Can you imagine what those Orthodox Jews, Peter and Andrew and James and John, thought? They'd been raised right. They knew what the law was. They knew that that's why lepers had to go around shouting, unclean, unclean, so people wouldn't, by mistake, come up and touch them and by mistake become ritually unclean. But the Lord Jesus Christ reaches out in his compassion and he touches this man who is a leper, this man who was not to be touched. He reaches out and he touches him because he's moved with compassion. I'm so thankful that... The writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest that we don't we don't have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Do you know what this tells me? This tells me that no matter how sick in sin I am, no matter how big a sinner I am, and let me say to you, I'm a big sinner. I sometimes wonder if, even though I know that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I sometimes wonder when he says that he was the chiefest of sinners, if it's just because he didn't know me yet. I feel so much to be the chiefest of sinners, and yet in his compassion, the Lord Jesus Christ reached out and touched me. And notice what he said. He said, I will be thou clean. <laughs> Now, I don't, I don't read anywhere where the Lord Jesus Christ refused to heal anybody or refused to touch anybody. He sat down and ate with publicans and sinners. He ate with those. We're going to see if we continue in this book of Mark that he called a man who was a publican, one of the greatest sinners of all and seen as such by all those around him. And yet he calls him to be one of his disciples. In verse 42, as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. And she straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away. Now, I want to bring this to a close this morning. Our time is about gone. I want to look at a couple of things in, in conclusion. First of all, notice the response that people had to the teaching, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were astonished at his doctrine in verse 22. They were amazed at his abilities in verse 27. And they began to seek him out. Verses 32 and then 36 through 37. It says in verse 35, the morning rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. <laughs> Notice that was the response of the people. He was in, now some of those people were, were no doubt moved by the Spirit, but many of them were just interested in the carnival show. You know, that's the way it was. Some people were following him because he healed many and he wanted to see it done again. And then some were following him, we read later on, because they'd been fed. But, but, um, but notice his response. Notice his response to all of this. In verse 32, or 35 rather, it says, In the morning, after he had healed all these folks of the diseases, Rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Now, now wait a minute. What You may say, preacher, what gives here? This is the Son of God. And, and according to our beliefs, the Son of God and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are one. So they're always in agreement. They're always together. Why is he going to pray? Well, the answer is I don't know all the answers to that. But I know this. The Lord Jesus Christ saw it important while he was in the flesh, while he was a man, that he have prayer time with his Father. Beloved, that ought to teach us something. It's important to us that we have prayer time with our Father. And the beauty of our prayer time, as opposed to his prayer time, is that we have an intercessor going in between us and the Father. He was having direct uh, contact, if you will, direct access to the Father because he is always in agreement with his Father and the Father had no problem with him. He was not a sin-cursed man. He was a sinless man. We're sin-cursed, but we have an advocate. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who was in perfect harmony with his Father to be our advocate. And it's important. if it's important to him, it ought to be important to us. And then in verse 38, the response that he gave to Peter when Peter said, hey, they're here, they're wanting to see you. He said, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. You know what this tells me? This tells me the preaching of the gospel is important. 
because the preaching of the gospel was important to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm all about healing. I'm all about helping. And we ought to be helping our brothers and sisters and praying for them. But the most important thing we can do is to tell them the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Oh, what a, what a lesson this is for us. And now for the last, the last point I want to make as we bring this to a close. We didn't read verse 44, but I want to read it now. This is after he healed the leper. Notice what he told the leper to do. He saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and listen to this, offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he, but he went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter. Notice what Jesus told him to do. He said, you go to the temple because the law says that when you're a leper, you've got to make certain sacrifices. And by the way, he says, offer for thy cleansing. Wasn't he already cleansed? So he's, you're saying he's got to go do something to get cleansed? No, he's already cleansed. <laughs> he's already been cleansed. Offer for thy cleansing or on account of or because of your cleansing. Because of what has happened to you, there's some things you need to do. Beloved, that's just like us. Because of what's been done for us, there's things we ought to do, but we don't do them in order to get it. We don't do them in order to get the salvation or to get new new birth. The new birth happens first, and then we have some things to do for that. You see, not in order to get it, but because of it. But I want you to notice one other thing here. In Leviticus 5, it tells us that that one who has touched a leper is unclean, right? Those laws were given for men. They were given to us for our benefit. And notice that Jesus says, you go and do what the law commands. But then Jesus didn't go and do anything as far as sacrifice, as far as uh, going to the priest or offering anything for his cleansing. Did Jesus break the law? Well, the answer to that is pretty simple. He didn't break the law. And the reason he didn't break the law is because Jesus was never in any danger of becoming unclean. Jesus, you see, if, if I touched a leper, if I touched somebody who was sick, you know, right now we're dealing with this social distancing because we don't need to be around others who might have the virus because they, they might give it to us or we might give it to them if we're carriers. But beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ could come down and touch sinners. He could touch a leper and never be in any danger of becoming unclean. And praise God, he, comes, he came down and he touched the sin of all of his people, every single one of his children. He bore their sin and he became sin for them. But at no time did he become unclean. At no time did he become a sinner. There was sin on the Lord Jesus Christ, but there was no sin within him. There was no part of his body that was tainted by the corruption of sin, even as he touched the sin of every single one of his children, even as he took the sin of all of his children and he bore the sin of all of his children and he bore it to the cruel cross of Calvary and he took it he took it all upon himself he drank in the to the dregs the wrath of the lord of, of the god the father he he bore the wrath of god on behalf of every single one of his children and he took it he drank it to the the very last drop and he never once became unclean <laughs> that's amazing isn't it you know, that's why I'm even martyring myself for the cause of Christ isn't going to get me to heaven because even in my martyrdom, I would be a sinner. But that's also why there's hope for me and there's hope for you because the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come down here to give you an option or an opportunity to be saved. He came down here to save his people from their sins. And because he was clean and never became unclean, he could touch your sin and take your sin and do away with your sin and pay for your sin. And because of that, that's good news. You see, that's why it's important that we understand from the beginning that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
He's, he's not a prophet, a priest. He's not a king. He's not something else. He's all of those things. But most importantly, he is the Son of God. And that's good news. And that's the good news that Peter related to Mark. And that's the good news that Mark wrote down for us to hear. And that's the reason we can preach today and enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of God. I hope you're able to see the truth of God's great good news, that he is the Son of God. And I hope that you're able to rejoice in that this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your kind attention this morning. May God bless you. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.